Well, it's good to see you all. It's good to be with family on the Lord's Day. And today I am looking forward to our passage, partially because I was looking forward to it last week as well, and we didn't make it, uh, but also because it is such a rich section that we are going to be jumping into. And I don't care what your itch is, if you're looking for practical comfort, if you're looking for eternal perspective, if you're looking for theological nuance, it's all here this morning. And so I, th- I think we'll really enjoy our time in God's Word together. And I would encourage you, if you would, to take your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 6. And this morning we're going to read that same section we looked at last week. And so if you would be willing to stand to honor the reading of God's Word and follow along In your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at John chapter 6, verses 34, down through verse 40. John chapter 6, 34 to 40 says this, Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Amen? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Looking around at the world today, it's pretty clear that not everything is working as intended, that things are rather broken. But it also seems clear that there's a lot of confusion as to what you're supposed to do about that. How do you fix what's wrong with the world? How do you even diagnose the problem, let alone convincingly come up with the cure? It reminds me a little bit of uh, last year when I came out and none of my turn signals would work. And I had all these unusual, unexpected lights on my dashboard. And I thought, well, I know what's wrong. Obviously, my bulbs are out. So I drove myself down to Walmart, got myself some nice new headlight bulbs, Got home, popped those in there. There, that ought to do it. Nope. What is going on? So then I started, you know, checking my battery. Maybe you got a low battery. Nope, that's fine. What could possibly be going on? Well, then I started tracing wires. And that's when I discovered I had had an uninvited guest underneath the hood of my car. A marmot had gotten in there and eaten my entire wiring harness. (laughs) And so, yeah, the light bulbs weren't going to do me much good. Uh, I had a completely wrong notion of what was wrong with my car. I had tried to fix it in a way that wasn't going to help in the slightest. And it wasn't until I finally understood what was wrong that I was able to start going about trying to fix it. Well, here's the thing. It's been a year, and I still have a light on my dashboard I can't make go away. So I found he hadn't just eaten the wiring harness on the front end of the car, but he'd also eaten the wiring harness on the back end of the car, and now I can't find which wires are still broken. And so no matter what I'm trying to do, it's not actually solving the problem, though I can use my turn signal. So I feel like I'm probably safe for travel. 
We as Christians claim to be those who know what's wrong with the world and know how to fix it because God has revealed that to us. But I'm concerned sometimes in listening to the voice of the church, let's use that just term broadly in our culture, that we have very little actual clarity on what we're supposed to be able to articulate to our culture. Namely, what did Jesus come to do and why is he the answer to it? I feel that often our understanding of the gospel is vague. That the good news is sort of this general thing that's more associated with how we feel about the church than actual knowledge of what the work accomplished by Jesus Christ on the, co- on the cross did. And that allows then our faith to keep getting co-opted by these other movements, other attempts to try to solve what's wrong in the world. And so Jesus is able to be boiled down to the hero of whatever current movement is popular in the culture. Oh yeah, my Jesus was this kind of a leader. My Jesus was this kind of a revolutionary. My Jesus was this kind of a therapist. Whatever it is, Jesus, the gospel, this good news, the Christian faith, all of these things, they just take on this tacky, saccharine veneer over whatever the dominant philosophy of the generation happens to be. And that's not a new phenomenon, because that's what Jesus was dealing with in our passage, is the culture coming to him and saying, this is our felt needs, this is what we think is wrong with the world, this is what we think we need to fix it, and so this is what we expect you to do for us, Jesus. And Jesus kept telling them, no, that's, that's not actually what I'm here for. You need to listen to me very carefully, because I'm going to tell you what your problem is, and I'm going to tell you how I'm going to fix it. And if we miss that, just like those following Jesus, we not only just miss the information that Jesus is telling us, we actually miss the salvation he offers us. And so I want to turn to our passage this morning as we look at seeing isn't believing, part two. And in verses 34 to 36, if you're taking notes this morning, if you kids got your kids bulletin, you've got the little place you can fill some of this in as well. Our point here is close doesn't count. In verses 34 to 36, close doesn't count when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to our Savior. Most of you have probably grown up with that old expression, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. It doesn't count in the gospel. And Jesus is trying to teach this to these people that are following him but not getting what he's saying. And he begins in verse verses 34 to 35, to lay out for them exactly what it is that he is offering them. And so in verse 34, we begin to look at a gift undeserved, a gift undeserved. Verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And this is the last question from the people in this crowd before Jesus that he's addressing, before he's going to actually change audiences and be talking to a subset of the crowd, the Jewish leaders down in verses 41 and following. So this is the end of an exchange that, if you recall, we were tracing last week. It began when Jesus confronts this crowd that had chased him around the lake, around the Sea of Galilee, and he says, you're only following me because you have full tummies. You need to be working not to get lunch. You need to be working for the food that endures to eternal life. And so then they responded, okay, what do we do so that we can work the works of God. All right, I know how this works. Give us the the checklist. How do we earn 
this food, whatever it is you're talking about. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what work you need to do. You need to believe me. Believe me. And they said, okay, fine. We'll believe you if you do a sign for us. Specifically, if you'll feed us bread from heaven like Moses did. And Jesus then said, Moses didn't give bread to anyone. God did. And now he's giving true bread to you. And so now they're responding to that by saying, great, keep it coming. Lord, always give us this bread. Are we back talking about food again? After everything that's been spoken, they still have not caught on to what Jesus is talking about. And I just want to put a little side note here for all the parents in the room, all the teachers in the room, all the friends, relatives, anybody who's ever like had to communicate with somebody else in the room. How many of you guys have ever tried to communicate something very important to somebody you care about over and over and over and over Right? Yeah, one person. Excellent. <laughs> so for you, it can be discouraging, right? Yeah. It can be discouraging. You're like, this is pointless. Take heart. Our Savior did the same thing. Our Savior did the same thing, but he understood the value of repetition. And sometimes our words and God's words any words of truth sink in immediately. Sometimes they're on a delayed fuse. Sometimes the audience that we're giving those words to refuse it, but somebody else hears and learns. Do not ever underestimate the value and the impact of faithfully delivering truth in love over and over and over tirelessly. And don't take it as necessarily a sign of failure that you're doing it for the 4,000th time. Jesus has been so patient with these people. His disciples don't get it. The, the Samaritans took a long time to get it. Now the crowds following around the lake, they don't get it. He just keeps preaching truth. And that is our pattern as well. But Jesus is now going to stop speaking in metaphor and directly tell them what it is that he's talking about. And so in verse 35, he says, here, let me spell this out for you very explicitly. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. He's been, as we mentioned last week, laying out for them, hey, I'm, I'm coming to offer you bread which endures to eternal life. It's bread which comes down from heaven. It's bread which has the signature of approval, the seal of God the Father. It's bread that I give out on my own will. And they're still thinking, what's it taste like? And so now Jesus says, not only do I give it from heaven, from my Father, it's me. It's me. I am that bread. I am that bread. And the kind of satisfaction that I give is not like the kind of satisfaction you get anywhere else. And he begins here in John's account of the gospel to lay out a series of statements that will pepper the rest of this book when Jesus is trying to tell people who he really is. We mentioned the book of John has seven major signs that Jesus performed that John records. This is the beginning of seven major sayings where Jesus says, I am fill in the blank. 
I want to reveal myself to you. He says here, I am the bread of life in John 8. I am the light of the world. In John 10, I am the door of the sheep. In John 10 as well, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, I am the true vine. So keep your ears open for those I am statements that pepper this book. Because this is where Jesus, the Messiah, is revealing something very important to us in each of these cases about his relationship to us. They're not even just abstract truths about himself, but in each of these cases, it's a way of him saying, this is how we are meant to understand each other. And here he's telling us, I and only I am the source of eternal, satisfying life. And what an offer Jesus makes here. It's even stronger in the original translation. It says, the one who comes to me will not hunger, and the one who believes in me will not thirst ever. This little big intensifying ever stuck onto the end of the sentence. This is not something that you can just come to God and say, hey, um, you know, I've done a bunch of stuff for you, so I'm pretty sure you just owe me eternal satisfaction. This is an offer of something so profound that all of human history can be described in one sense as a search for this bread. All the big thinkers, all the great leaders, trying to find some way to satisfy the longing of the human soul, to define why there is an unsatisfied sense in all of us and to figure out how to fill that in. And Jesus says, it's me. I am not just the one who has the answer, I am the answer the world was created to look for. This is grace, and it's profound grace. It's different here when he says you're not going to hunger and thirst from saying you won't feel hungry and thirsty. I was a little, some people get confused like, man, there are sometimes I just really long for satisfaction. That's not what he's talking about, but he's, it's the difference between a kid who comes to an empty table and says, Mommy, I'm so hungry. And Mommy has to say, I'm sorry, there's nothing to eat. And the kid who comes to a table full of dinner and plops down, he's got his fork and his knife, and he's like, I'm so hungry because the food's right there. Because it's available. Because this child will never suffer lack. He will never go through want. He feels hungry because he was designed to feel hungry for that which is being provided to him. And so this is not a verse that says, I'm going to remove your spiritual appetites. It's a verse that says, I'm going to satisfy your spiritual appetites. And I think sometimes we miss out because we feel these strong spiritual appetites, but we go to the wrong table. When Jesus says, come to me with your longing soul. And and we try to find so many other ways to find satisfaction and happiness. And Jesus says, no, that's not going to work. If you come to me, you will never be for want of food. If you come to me, you will never be for want of drink. If you look at 
what he lays out here as the prerequisites for being able to come and enjoy this meal, they're pretty simple. Coming and believing. Do you want to have access to the soul-satisfying person of Jesus Christ for all of eternity? You can't invest. You can't buy. You can't earn. You can't steal. You can't coerce. You can't take. You can only come and believe. The gospel is one of those amazing things where... You can invest your life into studying it. I've got the bookshelves in my office to prove it. You can invest your life into studying it, and there's so many intricate angles to what God is doing in His Son, Jesus Christ, that you can exhaust yourself, and we should exhaust ourselves, marveling at it. And yet it is the kind of thing that can be comprehended at an essential level by the very young. I know in my own testimony, I was four years old, didn't know much about anything, but I knew that if I came to Jesus and believed that he had died for me, I could be forgiven. And so for you little kids in the room this morning, this We're going to be talking about some big words and some cool stuff. But the gospel isn't something for grown-ups. The gospel isn't something just for smart people. You don't have to learn how to read, write, and do arithmetic first. The gospel is this. Come to Jesus. Believe what he says. And you will be given him the bread of life who will sustain you for all of eternity. We might be tempted to think, as the crowd was here, that, boy, this would be great news for them. Jesus says, come, and I'll give you eternal bread. And they're like, we've chased you around the lake twice in two days. If anybody's coming to Jesus, it's us, right? And we're about to find out in a moment that there's more than just chasing and being near Jesus involved. But I do want to pause just briefly for this lesson, and that is simply this. Jesus is all we need. Jesus is all we need. And this is not like a, a, a news flash. That's something we say all the time. Jesus is all we need. All I need is Jesus. You can have this whole world. Give me Jesus, right? As the song says... But what, what a gut check that thought actually is. If you, if you lay out your life, even in your mind, and here's my physical health, here's my, my hobbies and my interests, here's my family and the people that I love, here's my vocation and what I do to earn a living, here's all of the things that I value and treasure in this world, and then start asking if God takes that away will I be hungry and thirsty if God took that away would I be hungry and thirsty if God took all of it away would I be hungry and thirsty 
Or would I be satisfied if all I had left was him? And that doesn't mean we have to conjure up in our own minds the grace that it would take to endure such a trial because God has not given us the grace for those trials until they come. But it does mean that for everyone who would be a follower of Jesus Christ, you can't say, I'm putting one foot in this and I'm putting another foot in that and between the two of them, I hope I'll be fine. Jesus says, no, I am the bread of life. There is no other. And when we come to him, he says, I alone want to be the full satisfaction of your soul. And so for all of us, there is a way in which we need to count as dead to us all things but Christ. All things but Christ. And you know what you'll find? If we're willing to do that, that feeds life back into all the things. It's amazing to watch, take a marriage, for example. If I want my wife to be my source of life, she's an awesome wife. She's a lousy idol. Right? If I, if I want my vocation to be my source of meaning and significance, I've got one of the greatest jobs in the world. But tell you what, it's not going to feed my soul. But if we can come satisfied in Christ, how much can we enjoy the good gifts of God, endure the trials, have perspective on the hardships? And so that is... One of the lessons I, for just me personally, and then I want to share with us as a church, when we say Jesus is all we need, do we actually mean it, having thought through and counting the cost? Or is there that thing where Jesus is all I need, but he better not touch this? What a gracious gift Christ offers us, but we must take it as it is given, which is it must be our everything. Because otherwise we'll fall into the trap that the crowd did, which is getting close to Christ. But close doesn't count. Look at verse 36. There is a gift that Christ offered that was undeserved, but it is a gift that is unbelieved. In verse 36, Jesus tells these people, I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And notice the tenses here. Jesus tells them, you have seen me. That's a past tense there. You've been watching. You've seen my signs. You've seen my wonders. You've heard my teaching. You've had plenty of time to expose yourself to the truth of who I am. It's not like you just walked up and for those just tuning in, where you might have some, you know, okay, I get it. You don't quite understand yet. Jesus is saying you've had all the opportunity you need to see what I'm about. And yet, you do not believe, and that's in the present tense. You are not believing. You've seen it, but right now I see your hearts, and they are not hearts of belief. They're not believing the one that they've seen. Because seeing isn't believing. Because seeing isn't believing. That's, I mean, this is a pretty simple verse. And it's got a pretty simple lesson. Seeing isn't believing. You can't parade around acting like a Christian and get to heaven. It would be like 
like little boys dressing up in army gear. They go down just outside the gate of the local army base. Troops are out on parade, and they're marching back and forth along the gate, and you know, learning how to salute, and they're, oh, okay, I'm supposed to wear my patch on that shoulder, and okay, I'm supposed to do this. And, and they're doing everything they can to look just like the soldiers on the inside of that fence. But guess what? There's a world of difference between marching around acting like a soldier and signing up for the U.S. Army. Probably a few of you in here know what that actually means. When Uncle Sam says, I own you, you are now private property of the U.S. government. It's totally different. A lot of people enjoy marching around outside the gates of Christianity saying, look, those people seem happy. I seem happy. They're dressed up as Christians. I'm dressed up as a Christian. They sing their songs. I sing their songs. This has been a wonderful therapeutic break from normal life for me. Or they come to church and they say, yeah, I want to come to church. And they're talking about all this like self-sacrifice and dying to self and believing Jesus. And that's kind of weird. But like as, as I've gotten older, I've realized I really want to be a good person. It's just time to get my family back to church because, you know, we need some God in our lives to, so we'll be well-rounded individuals. And I don't, I don't care what brought you into the church. I'm glad you're here, but now that you're here, would you hear the words of Christ where close doesn't count? It's not enough to just follow Jesus around. We must believe what he says. Just seeing him is not enough. And I love the way that Christ calls us to follow him with the faith of a child. It's fun watching little children. Some of you in this room fit this category. The way that you accept propositional truth statements is really quite remarkable. When someone says, well, this is how this works, you say, okay, that's how it works. Just like that. It's amazing. You know, with my, with my children, it's so fun teaching them new categories of things, even hard topics. Daddy, what is death? Daddy, what is outer space? Daddy, why, why does the light disappear when we turn the light switch off? Right? These are all kinds of questions. And you say, well, you know, do your best to explain or... YouTube videos are cool, right? <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay. And they're sold. Somewhere around middle school and high school, you start going, but what about, right? That's when that sort of, show, sort of shows up, which is not a bad trend. And for you youth in the room that are asking lots of questions, I love that because there are answers. But there's something precious about the faith of a child who is able to be given truth and says, okay, then that's what is true. And that's the kind of faith that Jesus is asking from us, which doesn't mean we can't ask questions and we wouldn't, shouldn't seek out things and, and dive in and wrestle. But it means that when we say, I'm a Christian, it's because Jesus has declared something to be true and I'm declaring, I believe it. And I'm not adding a bunch of modifiers on to customize the faith to my preferences. Well, if the mission of Jesus then here is to offer eternal life to those who will come and to believe him, 
and Jesus has just confronted the crowd by saying, you don't actually believe me, then does that mean Jesus' mission has failed? And we might ask the same question. When, when we've gone out and we've shared the gospel with those that we love, our neighbors, our family members even, and this is the gospel and they don't believe, does that, what does that mean? Does the gospel not work? Well, if Jesus is on a mission, it can't be a mission that fails. Like That's just sort of that's how it works. When Jesus does something, it's going to work, but it doesn't work the way that we would always think. And so Jesus is going to explain to this crowd, this is how my mission actually works, why you're missing out, how you can stop missing out. And in verses 37 to 40, he lays out for us how this gospel works. And if you want to put a title for this section in your notes, it's simply this, the called will come. The called will come. You've seen, you haven't believed, but there's another group of people, another group of people that will believe. And it's such a rich passage here that we're entering into. It's As I mentioned, it's rich in messianic purpose. Jesus is telling us his mission and who he is. It's rich in hope. Jesus is giving us truly good news here and good news not just for today but on into eternity. But it's also rich in theology. Jesus is explaining how salvation works in detailed language and we don't want to miss all of that. And so in verse 37, we have this very simple yet very profound summary of how salvation works from God's perspective. And this is kind of cool, because often when we study salvation, we study it through our lens and how we experience it. But if God were to summarize, here's how the gospel works from his perspective, there it is in verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's how the gospel works from God's perspective. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And that word all there is one of those collective singulars. Like we have in English the word family. It's a single word, but it refers to multiple people. Why is that important? Because think about this. This verse is not teaching us that God gave me as a gift to Jesus Christ, and he gave you as a gift to Jesus Christ, and he gave you as a gift to Jesus Christ. No, God gave the church as a gift to Jesus Christ. He gave all y'all usins. I don't think I did that right, Jerry. Is that close? Close. The, the South has actually a higher degree of sophistication in their grammar than we do, which is mind-boggling. God gave us, as a defined group of people, to his Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is confident that the entirety of that divine group, divinely determined group, will come to him. Not some, not many, not most, all, all the church that God has chosen to give to his son will make it to the son, will come to the son. And notice they will not simply see Jesus, but come to him in saving faith. Not because of their own personalities, not because of their own effort, but because of the choice, the divine choice of God. His decision to give these people to his son. 
Why does he do that? Why does the Father give the church to his Son? Well, we find out in John 17, 24. If you want to put your thumb here and flip over, you can read with me. John 17, 24, Christ talking to his Father in prayer says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. When we read John 3.16, we, we find, For God so loved the excellent world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And when we read John 17, we read, For God so loved his son that he gave this group from the world. What a cool insight into the divine perspective on salvation. This beautiful picture of the relationship between the father and the son, the father choosing a gift to give his son, and then making sure that that gift comes all together to the son is what we call the doctrine of election. And sometimes that word just sounds scary, and we study it in this theological context where it's like, ah, it makes me feel uncomfortable, but here we see it in the context that we should understand it. For you kids, when we use the word doctrine in the church, it's simply a word that means something that is taught, something that we read in Scripture and that is taught to us by the Bible. The doctrine of election is the Bible teaching us that the Father has chosen a people to give to the Son and that everyone the Father has chosen to give to the Son will come to the Son. That's the doctrine of election. A people that is made up of men and women and children, as the Bible tells us, of every nation, every tribe, every tongue. You want to know what the solution is to all the cultural, racial, political, social strife in the world right now? It's not trying to fix the broken systems erected by broken people to be handed over to more broken people that will make more broken systems. The solution is that the Father loves the Son so much that he has called to himself people from everywhere to be transformed into new creatures and joined into one body to be a bride for Jesus Christ. And that's our message that the world needs to hear not, well, you should come to church because we'll make more moral people that will live better together. No, it's come to Jesus Christ and believe him so that you may be transformed and find in your relationship with your Savior the relationship with your fellow man that you're also missing out on. This also means that since it is those who the Father is bringing to the Son that come, Anybody who knocks on heaven's door and says, can I come in? Need not fear. Well, who do you think you are? But everyone who comes to heaven's door and knocks and says, can I come in? will hear, but of course I've been expecting you. And that leads us to the second half of this verse, which is personal. The first half is collective. The second half is personal. The one who comes to me 
I will certainly not cast out. We move from the group of all believers to this special promise for every individual believer. And it's a rhetorical style here. It's a little bit like sarcasm. It's like if a fisherman, you ask, oh, did you catch a, a good-sized fish? And he's like, it was not a small fish. Right? Oh, it's pretty big. Or maybe uh, your, your kid says, uh, Mommy, I, something happened. Did you make a mess? Well, sort of. Is it a big mess? It's not a small mess. <laughs> right? Or you hand somebody a platter of full of carved turkey to carry to the table. And like, um, you know, I'll try not to drop it. That means more than just I'll try not to drop it. It means I'm going to actively try to keep it up and together until it reaches the table safely. And so when Jesus says here, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That is so much more than simply saying, I guess I won't kick you to the curb. It's his way of saying, if you come, I will keep you. If you come, I will keep you. And that is emphasized even more strongly in the verses ahead. All who have been chosen by the Father will come. All who come will be kept. The Father's choosing is what we call election. What we're seeing here, the Son's keeping, is what we call the preservation of the saints. We talk sometimes about the perseverance of the saints, which means that if we have come to know Christ truly, we will follow Him to death. We will persevere to the end. But from the divine perspective, it is not that we persevere to the end of life, that we remain faithful to the end of life because of our strength. From the divine perspective, we persevere because we've been preserved. Christ keeps us because we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Amen? If I could lose my salvation, I'd have figured out a way to lose it already by now. But God keeps us. The same one who chose us is the same one who keeps us. These, these doctrines that we talk about in the church are not simply random theological categories. They are precious truths that define our relationship with our Savior. Describe the grace of God as it works out between Him and us. And so for our lessons for this section, it's simply this. Salvation isn't about us. Salvation isn't about us. Salvation obviously involves us because we're the ones that get saved. But this is a, a dose of humility that I think the church desperately needs. Jesus didn't come down to earth because he couldn't imagine heaven without us. He didn't look at wretched rebels and say, Aww, they're so cute. Father, can I keep it? And yet, isn't that how we sometimes talk about the gospel? Jesus came to earth to die for me. That means I'm so special. No, we should stand amazed and say, how mind-boggling is it that the Father loves His Son so much that He wants to give to His Son a bride. And the Son loves the Father so much that He is willing to be obedient to the point of death, even the death of on the cross to follow his will and somehow you and I get caught up into the middle of that love in a way that saves us and draws us into that relationship because it's not about us 
Creation is not a story of the glory of man. It's a story of the glory of God and how mind-boggling that, that God would then share his glory in grace with undeserving creatures. It's not about us. And we need to take that massive dose of humility because that's also what makes the gospel good news. It's not about us, and that is good news. And that is good news. Because guess what? If the, if the gospel was about us, we would mess it up. We would mess it up. We'd deny it. We'd distort it. We would twist it to serve our own fallen human passions. But because it's not about us, it's really good news that if God has decided you are part of the all that the Father has given to His Son, then guess what? You're going to make it. You're going to come. And you're going to be kept. That's good, good news. This is how Jesus summarizes the gospel for us. And then in verses 38 to 40, He defends it. He's not going to defend how this gospel works this way. Primarily, again, looking from the divine perspective, but now he's also going to bring in the role that we play. In verses 38 to 40, salvation defended. Look with me at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is a great just life motto, by the way, for all of us. I'm not here to do what I want. I'm here to do what God wants. So if you're just looking for a good life motto, there's a good one to consider. Jesus has been developing this theme for a while. I'm not speaking on my own authority, but the authority of God. I'm not here to do my will, but God's will. I'm not here because it's my idea. I'm here because it's his idea. And that's significant because that means he's anchoring our salvation not in his relationship with us, He's anchoring our salvation in his relationship with his Father. Right? He's undergirding that this, this salvation thing is not because you guys have followed me to the point where I feel sorry for you now and I'll give you eternal bread. He's saying everything that's going to happen when it comes to my work as the Messiah is flowing out of not our relationship, but our relationship. And so we want to understand that. And so in verses 39 and 40, he tells us twice, this is the will of my Father. I'm here. This whole gospel thing, this Messiah thing is all about me doing the will of my Father. What is that will? Two things. I'll tell you. I love these verses when it's like, I'm just going to spell it out for you. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So first, it is the will of God that all the given will eventually be glorified. That the given will be glorified. All the redeemed will be raised. And this is the view of salvation from God's perspective again. This is where we start talking about doctrines like divine sovereignty, meaning he's in charge. And what he wants to do is what happens always and perfectly. What is God's will? That of those he brings and gives to the Son, Jesus will lose how many? What percentage? Zero. Some of you guys can take a big sigh of relief right now. Let's face it. Some of us probably really blew it in sin this week. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you dragged yourself in because you thought it was the right thing to do, but you're like, well, I don't even belong here. Man, man, did I blow it this week. God has got to be mad at me. No, God is planning your resurrection. Can sin grieve him? Yes. Does he ever regret the gift he gave his son? No, because God doesn't make whoopsies. Does the son ever regret the gift he was given? No, because the son knows the father gives perfect gifts. And will anything accidentally fall through the cracks between the gift given and the gift glorified? Nothing. That's good news. That is good news. Sovereignty of God through history has been a doctrine some people have looked at and say, that makes God a monster. No, it doesn't. It makes him a savior. It makes him a savior. We're going to see resurrection show up four times in this discourse. And Ben, I'm sure we'll get into it a lot more in the weeks ahead. But I want us to latch on to that hope of resurrection. Resurrection is like the flag in our national anthem that flies over the beleaguered fortress that's been shelled all night. The resurrection of Christ is that proof that he won the battle. And our resurrection is what we are waiting for too. And it is as certain as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 40, he now switches to the Father's will for us. Look at this. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. It is the will of God that everyone who beholds, we talked about this last week, to look long at for understanding. Not just like, oh, there's a Jesus. That's cool. But who is this Jesus? Who beholds and believes in him will have eternal life. This is another one of those phrases that's hard to render quite right in English because it's it's really all kind of with a present tense force. It's Whoever is beholding and whoever is believing is the one having eternal life. And so he's looking at the crowd. He says, you see me, but you don't believe. But my father has prepared a gift for me from among all of you. And whoever here is beholding and believing, you already have eternal life. The bread's already yours. Dinner is served. Dig in. This is the human responsibility side of salvation. We don't just die and show up at heaven and then he's like, surprise, you were elect. The way this plays out in time and space is that those that the Father has chosen, they hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And God takes a dead heart and makes it alive to understand the good news of Jesus Christ. And in his grace, he irresistibly draws the will of those people to his son in faith, believing so that they say, yes, I believe that's true. I will follow Jesus Christ. 
I will behold and believe him as my Savior. And that's the call to us. And there may be some people in this room who've been at church their entire lives. And this may be the first Sunday they're realizing it's just now finally clicking. It's always been about Jesus. And you're beholding him maybe for the first time. And and by God's grace, maybe you're believing him for the first time. And praise God for that. Please tell somebody. We can celebrate. This is what it means for us. And when that moment happens where you say, I believe, we don't get to say, man, I'm a good believer. We say, thank you, Father, for making me part of your gift to your son. So for our closing lesson, it's simply this. Rest in God's promises. Rest in God's promises. Rest in the divine sovereignty of God. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how much of a goober you are. You're going to rise. And not just rise generically, but notice Jesus says, I myself. I will see to it personally. There's no angel he's going to send to drag you out of the grave one day because I ain't got time for that loser. He will come and raise you up. Rest in the sovereignty of God. But secondly, live by faith. Live by faith. This is our human responsibility. How do we demonstrate the divine work of God in our lives? Beholding and believing is not something that happened. It's something that needs to be happening. Are you beholding? Are you believing today? And if you are, rejoice. You are having eternal life right now. And if that feels distant because of sin, like there's a process for that. Repent. Say, Father, forgive me for my sins as I know you do in Christ, that I might be restored, not to the reality of my salvation, but to the joy of it. And a great opportunity to do that is right now as we transition into our time of taking communion together. And so as the music team comes up to lead us in song, that's our question. Are we right now beholding and believing and enjoying the bread of life? If not, come to Christ for the first time or return to the Savior who is keeping you even today, even in our brokenness, that the joy of our salvation would be made full. As the music plays, would you ponder these things and then in a moment we will partake together.